Well, good day there, ladies and gentlemen. This is T. Ray from H10, Hanshin Tigers English News. It is the 2023 offseason, and of course, we are excited because we're spending the offseason as champions. Yeah! All right. Well, we are going to do a few occasional shows during the offseason, and today I've got one for you. Actually, we are going to be talking to an author, a professor at a university, fellow Tigers fan, just like you and I, um, lives just down the road from the, the ballpark. And uh, so we're going to jump into the inter interview right now. Here's my talk with John Rusinski. Who's in the chair? Who's tea talking to? Who's in the chair? Maybe veteran, maybe do. Who's in the chair? Who's in the chair? Who's in the chair? Well, without far further ado, I would like to welcome John Rusinski to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks. Good morning, and uh, good to see you again. And um, our worlds are so much different now with a with a championship to claim. So, uh... indeed, they are. And it's interesting that we did this recording a year ago before any of this went down, and somehow it got lost in my archives. So it's coming out in the box set. 10 years down the road when I release all of the hidden archives. But John, I appreciate you uh, flexing with me and joining me this off season, which is definitely a much more jubilant one. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, who you are, where you came from and how you got to Japan. Okay. Um, well, I'm uh, originally from uh, upstate New York in the States and um, a army brat upbringing. So I've been around New York, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Texas, Wisconsin, uh, later grad school in Vermont. So, uh, been around a bit. I wish I had a better story after all these years about, you know, the question of why did you come to Japan? Um, but, um, yeah, I just, uh, I majored in creative writing and I had done a, um, a, internship with literacy volunteers of america my senior year of college who also did work for international students um who needed esl tutoring and so i was quite interested in getting to esl or esl efl teaching and had a cousin over here in japan and back in the 90s um with his brilliant letters kind of convinced me to give it a go letters not emails back in that day and um <laughs> yeah so i think I won't answer this now, but the better question for me has always been, you know, not why did you come to Japan, but why have you stayed in Japan? So uh, I have a lot of reasons for that, which maybe we'll get into, but yeah, here I am. And I'm currently a uh, associate professor in the language education center at Okayama University. So surprisingly not based in Kansai for my work, but I, I do live quite close to Koshien. Right. And so I actually, I just listened to a different pod that you guessed it on. It was quite good. And so I'll kind of add this a little bit. And I suppose you were in Tokyo with your cousin and then you found an ad that uh, you found a job opening up in Sapporo. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And um, I just assumed not being um, much of the world traveler at the time, I just assumed I'd be in Tokyo or my Saitama, my, my cousin was actually in Saitama, um, but I figured I'd be as close to him as possible because I wasn't really ready to be independent. But yeah, got this job offer in Sapporo, looked it up, and we both looked at each other and said, this sounds great. So I guess that's another thing we have in common is the um, we were both in Sapporo, right? That's true. Yeah, I was on the West End in Kotoni. How about yourself? Uh, I started in a Toyohira ward over by... Um, Okay, Gakuen, and right. then um, lived also uh, right right next to Nakajima, Cohen, um, beautiful place in Sapporo. Nice part of town, yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Then. How long were you in Sapporo then? Uh, so I did a um, bit over five years. I had a break in between. I actually spent a few months in Poland. Um, you probably picked up on Ruzinski's a Polish name, um, but then Japan um, pulled me back as it tends to do and um yeah a little over five years in Sapporo, uh mid to late 90s the dark years of hunching but we'll get into that <laughs> yeah we can get into that real quick i just have to throw an oyaji gag which you probably heard while you're up there but lushinski wa suki suki <laughs> speaking yeah. of polish names yeah the ski um anyways yeah so you're up in Sapporo, and again um i'll just throw in the little bait here for the the audience but you can fill us in on the details you became a tigers fan up there in Sapporo, correct 
Yeah, so very unlikely route to become a Tigers fan. Um, first, that I was nowhere near Kansai. Uh, second, that I might be the first American ever introduced to baseball by an Australian. Because um, I, um, <laughs> yeah, we did. This was ninety, so pre um, pre Nietzsche Ham. Um, but the great thing about Sapporo is you might remember is um, because they didn't have a team at the time every summer, like almost every team would, would come up and, and play at the great uh, Mariyama Kyujo out in the suburbs of Sapporo, another beautiful part of town. And um, yeah, my first game, you know, Japanese baseball didn't do too much for me. And then around 90, I think it was 1997, um, my uh, Australian friend said, "Oh, we got to check out this team, the Hunching Tigers. Their their fans are insane." And I said, "Okay, it sounds like a good time." And yeah, they had a weekend series, and the first game was so fun. We came back for the Sunday game, so yeah, been a fan since. All and now I can say, while you're up there, and is it coincidence then that you ended up down in Kansai, or was that part of what drew you here? Yeah, uh, more. Um, more coincidence i i left i left sapporo in japan in 2000 uh went home and got my master's degree and then uh spent a couple years in new zealand um but i was looking to get back to japan and i wanted to get into university teaching so it wasn't like um it wasn't the top priority like i gotta be by koshian but right. it, it just worked out wonderfully that um i was more attracted to kansai than kanto i i thought it was a bit more interesting open area of japan and then yeah in, in 2004 i got a interview and then a job offer from uh, kwansei gakuen university so um yeah been in kansai since so almost 20 years now right come out on 20 years and so you were here for the well until recently the most recent um usual for the hunching tigers right and then of course you were here for the big one that just happened uh, earlier this month. Well, anyhow, um, tell us a little bit more about your interests as a professional. Like, I know that you've got kind of a unique kind of research field, and then also some of your side hobbies besides the tigers, because I know that you've got a, a fairly decent wealth of uh, hobbies as well. Right. Yeah. So, professionally, yeah, my research area is uh, somewhat unique. Um, I do a lot on humor in language education and uh, cross-cultural awareness, um, language acquisition. And yeah, that's one of those things. Um, it started kind of as a lark, you know, like uh, maybe 2006 or so, um, went to my first JALT conference down in, in Kita Kyushu and said, well, you know, I want to do something fun, something different. So I'll put in a proposal on teaching with the Simpsons, which I was doing a lot of in my classes. And, um, you know, not only got accepted, it had a great audience, you know, people were sitting on the floor, you know, cause they, well, hopefully they wanted to listen to me a bit and not just watch some Simpsons scenes. But, um, yeah, that really, uh, kept the ball just kept rolling. And then, um, when I started at Okayama university, we're, you know, kind of required to apply for, for Kaken, uh, government uh, grants. And, um, you know, if, if I was going to do this, I want to do something I was passionate about, not the typical topics of, you know, vocabulary or grammar, which nothing wrong with those topics, but, um, <laughs> I was really intrigued by humor about, you know, how it can help and, and also hinder the classroom and, and also, you know, the, um, the role it plays in, in understanding and communicating in a different language and talking to a lot of students, university students who studied abroad, you know, that really, uh, got me into this as well. Cause just with these quite high TOEIC scores and, you know, academically they felt fine overseas, but they were all often confused by the humor. And so I, I thought that was very intriguing that, you know, I wanted to go down that rabbit hole, see if there were any possible solutions to, um, to helping people, um, use and interact and understand humor in, in foreign language communication. It really is a fascinating topic. And yeah, I mean, it requires almost like a different level of not even language. Well, it is partly language, but it is also uh, cultural understanding. Um, and I know we, we don't want to get into too much depth here, although we could certainly, but there's certain 
um, kind of stages that you have to pass through, right? I mean, you have to be able to recognize that it that humor is being used of some sort. You have to understand the humor, appreciate it, and then maybe even be able to apply it. Something like that. Am I correct? Yeah. So that's um, again when I I think a lot of a reason a lot of people give up on humor is they don't think about it deeply enough that it's like teaching anything anything it's a, it's a process you know people criticize that you know too they say well there's nothing more unfunny than trying to explain why something's funny and <laughs> if you break true, down true. humor it doesn't work but but when you're talking about an EFL environment i think like anything else you can break it down and and yeah like you were hinting at um that's so my colleague and i Caleb Pritchard have a book we edited um bridging the humor barrier and we did use these four stages of of what you were hinting at. So yeah, first is just being able to detect. So if a American person uses sarcasm, you have to recognize that they're joking. And then the next stage would be uh, comprehension to to get what they really mean with their non literal language, and then uh, response to be able to you don't have to appreciate it, but at least acknowledge it. Um, you know, in a positive or negative way. And then, you know, the most complicated stage would be production to be actually able to produce and use your own humor in a foreign language, which is obviously not easy. Not at all. Not at all. Well, hey, we're going to, we'll circle back to your other hobbies maybe a little bit later on. But while we're on this topic, um, if I'm not mistaken, John, you have actually used the Hunching Tigers in your classroom to explain certain um, humor points or or certain things like that involving a certain incident between a Hanshin pitcher and a foreign outfielder. Am I right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just a great uh, case study with the famous, um, you know, I unfortunate, I hate no me uh, comment by, by our beloved Matt Martin. Um, so yeah, I, but I think it does. Um, it's just a great simple case study to show you know, what, what can go wrong and then, you know, think about different solutions, uh, et cetera. So I do have a humor and cross-cultural communication class with students from like 10 different countries. So it's, it's just a easy to understand case study that, that they enjoy discussing despite regrettably, uh, very little interest in, in baseball or Japanese baseball. Um, you know, I do get some Japanese students, but you know, um, the international exchange students, um, you know, most of them are from countries that have little interest in baseball, but they have enjoyed um, discussing this case study and they get a little Hanshin Tigers history uh, thrown in there as well. All right. Well, let's actually give our audience a bit of a background on this in case they're not familiar with the story. And may maybe you've written about it in a paper or something that they can access online. But um, it was the year was, I think, 2012. It was the end of 2012 or around then. Um Merton himself, Matt Merton, was not having an outstanding season. And in on one particular play, I guess the a runner was allowed to score in a situation that maybe a Japanese outfielder would not have been uh, so, I guess, passive on defense or whatever. After the game, uh, the reporters interviewed Merton and they said, hey, what was up with that play? And Merton sarcastically said to the reporters, uh, I just wanted to let them score because I don't like Nomi. And of course, he was really annoyed with the question and he was being completely sarcastic, but it set off this ripple effect within the media, within maybe even the team to an extent of, hey, there's this rift between, you know, star pitcher and foreign outfielder. And that kind of got blown up. And then the next year, actually, they patched things up on the heroes podium one day when they when they happened to both be the hero of the game. And Merton kind of interrupted the interview and turned to Nomi and said, Nomi-san, I stayed um, and they hugged. And so that also became kind of a, an iconic moment of the 2013 season. And so this is the incident that you're referring to. Have you written anything? Like, have you got any paper or any like part of a chapter of a book or anything about this incident? Um, no, I've just mentioned, uh, I did write a short uh, paper just for the uh, Colbe Jolt Journal in which I talked about a couple different um, cross-cultural humor misunderstanding case studies, as I call them. So I did just use that as a... Uh, kind of model or sample lesson in that um yeah and i do think it's um it's unfortunate um because it was as you probably know i mean totally out of character for martin and and i think as we've discussed before i think the reporter probably did know that this was sarcasm um but just saw a headline there and that's exactly what happened you know? 
Yeah. Had he taken your course, he might have been uh, on the ball and uh, the whole <laughs> crisis would have been averted. But anyhow, um, so John, um, you've been a Tigers fan now for, well, a couple of decades at least. Um, and here we are in 2023. Let's dive right into the season because we both experienced it as fans. We even took in a game together. Um, give me some of your thoughts on the 2023 season. What is it that made the Tigers successful this year where they couldn't get it together in any of the past, well, 38 years? Yeah. Um, yeah. Tough question. I mean, I'm not sure how you felt, but I was, I was very skeptical about bringing back, you know, Mr. Okada. Um, it had been, uh, it'd been over 10 years since he managed it all. Right. Uh, 15 anywhere and 18 with the tigers or pardon me. Wow. Uh, no, 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 sorry. It's uh 15 with the tigers and like over a decade. Cause he was with Oryx as a manager. Oryx, for right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, so it just felt like um they were out of options out of ideas at first but but once he once he started i got this feeling that his strategy was going to be st- stability and that's really what i um that's when i kind of embraced um okada 2.0 cuz um you know it, it, when a team's switching up their lineup every day it just looks very desperate that they're never going to quite hit on it and and i think they just needed the assurance that he trusted them and and I think he did come out and say, you know, we're going to have a set lineup. And, uh, I, I think that was very important. Um, and not, um, you know, we struggled at times to score runs again, but I think just having that set lineup, having people knowing their roles, I think it really, uh, paid off in the end. I'm not sure if that was the magic bullet, but, um, maybe you have some, uh, brighter insights. Well, I think that, um, you know, I, I hate criticizing Yano because I really liked him, but maybe his shuffling of the lineup and shuffling of positions, he was, I know he was doing various things in that. He was giving the players different types of experience, giving them the opportunity to challenge themselves to change or improve or, you know, get these new insights into the game or whatever it might be. But um, you touched on that kind of term, magic formula, magic bullet, whatever. And I feel like maybe he was just looking for the magic bullet, whereas Okada was kind of saying, look, like, it's not, there's no such thing as magic. And mm-hmm. if we put the same lineup out every day, we're, we don't need the magic bullet because eventually they'll figure out their roles. They'll figure out how to score runs and it'll take care of itself. And that, I feel like that's kind of what happened. I mean, like the players really settled in probably after the first couple of months, maybe after interleague when they struggled, they really settled in quite well and just took off from there. They knew what they needed to do or what they didn't need to do. Um, how to do it. The defense came together. Um, I think I don't have the number in front of me, but I think we had more double plays than any other team. We also had more errors than most teams, but um, you know, some of those errors were offset by double plays. A lot of them were bailed out by an outstanding pitching staff, which I think is another one of our strengths. Um, but yeah, on the whole, you know, when Okada came in, I wasn't expecting this result this soon, or maybe even at all from him. I felt like he was more of somebody that was just uh, part of the relay race, you know, and he's grabbing yep. the baton from Yano and he's going to pass it on to the next guy, the next young guy, because, you know, nobody is hoping that uh, Yano, uh, pardon me, that Okada goes on a 10 year run here as manager. It's probably three years max. You know, he's 66, right, right. I think next month. So, you know, father time is knocking on his door saying, Hey, old man, sit down. We got to have a talk. So I don't think he's going to be there forever, but, um, He's instilled something in the team that um, none of the previous managers were able to do. But uh, John, to be honest with you, I think one of the biggest things that he did uh, as a service to the team was how he handled the media um, after games. Um, And the result of that, of course, I think trickled down to the fans who were also not, I, I just felt like there wasn't that much hype this year in a positive way you know one was bringing right, in the magic right. slogan the the are the are right <laughs> but then the other one too was when players um, made mistakes or slumped he wasn't he was very slow to criticize them in front of the press mm, you know and mm. he would just say look you know players go through hard times or yeah he's slumping right now um so what you know and he didn't make a big deal of it he didn't make any comments that would feed them headlines or anything like that and I think the result was just this calming presence on the team. Players also knew like, well, if they commit an error or if they slump, they're not being sent to the farm immediately. Whereas I think, you know, um, especially the manager before Yano, I think Mr. Kanemoto was quite trigger happy with the players when they right. didn't produce. 
And Okada showed a great deal of patience and especially like kind of spoiler alert or just cutting to the chase. You know, you look at like a Sheldon Noisy who really didn't have a very great season at all by any means. But mm. those last two games of the year, I'm not saying <laughs> yeah. like he always had this in him and, and Okada showed patience and it paid off, but it just was one of those byproducts of Okada continuing to use him and not saying, look, if you can't hit 250 at least and hit 20 home runs, at least we don't need you. You know, that's what a lot of the managers of the past said. And right, Okada said, yeah, we're yeah. sticking with you, man, because you're filling a position there. You're playing strong on defense and you know your role. And we're not expecting you to win every ball game for us with home runs. And, you know, in the end, it paid off and Noisy was a productive member of the team. And sounds like he's back in 2024. Yeah, I mean, there's always been kind of unfair expectations on the foreign players, maybe even more so with with the Tigers, because just this unreasonable expectation, always waiting for the next Randy Bass, you know. And mm-hmm. and it seems like Golden Week is the kind of cutoff, you know. If you don't, if you're not a superstar by Golden Week, you know, you might find yourself on the Nigun, and that that's just such a crushing thing for for foreign players to to be, you know, treated like that. So, um, yeah, I think that stability. And going back to what you said, I I mean, viewers can't see, but you'll see me with my Kanemoto jersey, who was my favorite player. But, you know, as a manager, I think he was was too harsh, was too strict. Whereas I think the Yano was kind of the opposite, a bit too a bit too soft, maybe, or or nice. Mm-hmm. And Okada was just kind of in the middle there, just a old guy, old boy doing his job and giving some stability to the team. And I don't know if that was the magic bullet, but I'll take it. Yeah, again, um, you know, with Yano, he was calling the players by their first names, which is very uncommon in this society, um, let alone on a baseball team. Um, And then, you know, you talk to the players this year. Hey, you know, what did Okada, what kind of advice did he give you personally? And they're like, I don't think I ever had a conversation with him, (laughs) to be honest. Like he and he wasn't distant. I mean, he still made his his voice heard and, you know, they had team meetings and he spoke to the whole team. But, you know, a lot of his advice uh, during the season really uh, paid off, you know, starting with, I don't mind if you strike out looking, uh, because if you can get on base via the walk, that does a lot more damage. It actually does more damage than a single hit in a lot of cases, because it gets under the pitcher's skin more than a hit. You know, pitchers expect that they're going to get hit. They don't like giving people free Mm. bases. And so those hurt even more. So he said, hey, if you strike out looking, I'm not going to tell you that you should have swung or what are you doing? Um, And then against Sasaki in June, he said, hey, like, just don't swing at anything low because odds are it's going to be a fork ball in the dirt. You know, if it's coming in low, just let it go. And what happened was that um, the only RBI hit we got off of Sasaki was up in the zone. It was a fork ball that didn't fall to Oyama. Mm. And so that advice paid off and, and Saiki did all he needed to do to pitch a shutout that day. And so again, it, you know that term magic bullet or some people would say okada magic like it we just saw it again and again this season so it was, it was mm-hmm. a really fun season in that respect just to see a lot of moves pay off you know whether it was the reliever or um i don't know if you remember john in game three mid at bat he swapped the hitter out it was shimada at bat and then nakano stole a base and got into scoring position and okada was probably like okay, Haraguchi is our guy here. And it was an 0-1 count on Haraguchi when he stepped into the into the batter's mm-hmm. box and he hit a home run. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was just a fun season on the whole, uh, if you ask me. Yeah, and just, um, I mean, I was cautiously optimistic as as all that Tigers fans can hope to be. But, you know, um, yeah, this was just not really expected. Um, I remember we had a, we had a pattern for two or three managers in a row where they would finish fourth their first season and then first the next season. I think that started with Hoshino and continued for one or maybe even two more managers. But yeah, Okada just came back in and, and yeah, brought home the gold. Yeah, yeah, it was great stuff. So um, here we are in the off season, And I think, John, last offseason, we were talking about the book that you kind of brought together where you recruited multiple authors, most of whom, or I shouldn't even say authors, it's just multiple people. They're not necessarily authors by trade, um, recruited these people to produce a chapter uh, telling the story of how they 
found their home in Japan, if you will. And the book is called A Passion for Japan. Um, you were the chief editor, is that right? Or did you have some other role that uh, or title that uh, you want to share? Oh, no, yeah, that's uh, I was the editor. I also wrote the introduction and contributed chapter, but yeah, editor was my main role in this project. And... Yeah, so um, John reached out to me. I don't even remember when it was quite it was quite a while ago and reached out to several other authors or or people and asked if they were interested in being part of the project. And I jumped on it. And one of the interesting things, John, was that you kind of helped everybody out by giving like a sample chapter. You said, well, here's an example of, of what a chapter might look like. And you wrote not the chapter that went in the book by you, but your story of how you became a Tigers fan and how that kind of uh, helped you uh, feel comfortable or at home in Japan. And I was inspired by that, obviously. And, and that's kind of what my chapter ended up looking like. Um, and I wrote one of 31, correct? Including yours, 31 chapters? That's so right. 31 contributors. That's right. Yeah. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the other chapters or contributors and maybe a couple of highlights? Yeah. So, um, yeah, thanks again for your contribution to that. And this this book did come out yeah, in 2022, so time is flying by. Um, so again, you've summed it up nicely, but I really wanted people to just write about, you know, we talk a lot about culture shock and, you know, what it takes to get over that. But, but one thing we, one area that's not mentioned in the kind of culture shock, culture shock model or progression is, you know, I think really when you can start feeling like this, this is my home, you know, I belong here, um, despite, you know, remaining cultural differences or difficulties. So I was really kind of inspired by people I saw who just had their different passions, be it a side passion or some related to their career that, that really helped them, you know, you know, feel at home and feel a sense of belonging here in Japan. So, so there was your story, of course, with the tigers, um, just some other ones that stick out. Um, uh, so of another friend, uh, Carmen Thomas, um, from Romania, um, wrote about Tenjin Matsudi in Osaka. And that, mm -hmm. that's actually a career thing. She, she's a sociologist, um, and researches Japanese festivals. Um, but, but she's very unique in that, you know, this is very much a man's world, but, but she was giving like, you know, inside access for a year to to see these rituals of the Tenjin Matsudi. Um some other sports there are a few sports ones in there. So um a couple sumo chapters. Um and again people could have approached this as something they do for their career or just as a hobby. So um uh Tim Craig, a fellow sumo fan, just wrote about moving Japan back in the 1970s and, and how he had this love of sumo and how that helped him, you know, make friends and fit in. And then a woman from Australia, Katrina Watts, um, went on to, um, to be a, uh, translator and, um, do many roles with the world of sumo, both, um, pro sumo, amateur sumo, international sumo. Um, yeah, so all kinds of, um, different highlights here. Uh, uh, yeah, there was ceremony. also one on soccer. Uh, someone was really interested in soccer. And then you got some other, well, I wouldn't call fringe sports, but they're not what we think of when we hear the word sport, right? There was one on hiking. Um, there was one on um, chess, right? So there right, were a right. lot of these. I mean, some of them were very hobby centric, if you will. And then some of them, as you said, were kind of more along the lines of career. And some of them were were actually a lot more kind of I guess calming or or whatever like you know there was one on right there was one on gardening there was one on old japanese homes all sorts of chapters and for someone like me who is like kind of a one hobby man i i hate to admit <laughs> um but if if you know me from this podcast you basically know me <laughs> um but reading this book really opened my eyes to all these different aspects of japan and how different people from different walks of life like previous walks of life have really attached themselves and grown fond of this part of Japan that to me, like I knew was out there, but I just had a new appreciation for by reading the book. Yeah. Thanks for that. And again, just, um, I really, you know, it, my kind of, um, approach with this really evolved with some of the great proposals I got. Cause, um, you know, at first I wanted things that were, you know, kind of uniquely Japanese, but then as you think about it, 
what's really uniquely Japanese. And it's, it's more about, you know, if, if there's a community you can join, whether it's originally Japanese or not. So yeah, gardening is one of those ones. I saw the proposal and, you know, I had no interest myself in gardening. I'm like, well, how's this chapter going to go? And then the proposal was, was great. And then Rob McLaughlin, uh, uh, Canadian in Japan just wrote this amazing chapter. And, and I think that was one of the better chapters at, at showing how this really gave him a sense of community. Um, he's living in, in Shizuoka prefecture and, and, you know, met people he wouldn't have met and, and felt like a member of his community and, you know, not just the token foreigner. And as you said, some of the fringe, uh, the chess one as well was, um, the yeah, Simon Bibby, uh, from England, uh, actually is on the national, Japan chess team and has represented Japan in international, uh, events, uh, volleyball as well. Most people wouldn't right. think of volleyball at first when you think of Japanese sports, but a Canadian fellow Canadian with, with you, I mean, uh, Greg Ruo has been volunteering, uh, volleyball matches in Japan for, for decades. So yeah, it's just fascinating how people, you know, get into these worlds that, and communities that, that I didn't know about in Japan and I'm not a part of. Yeah, so for those of you who are listening, and if you're at all intrigued, I mean, this is a book that I think is available in well ebook format almost anywhere you can get books, and then also there's a printed version. Is it is it just on Amazon, John? Yeah, so it's it's quasi self published through Tim Craig's uh, Blue Sky Publishing, but it, it uh-huh. is it is uh, exclusive to Amazon. But um, yeah, ebook anywhere and um, paperback version in select countries. So we'll put a link to that in the uh, in the show notes, um, and we'll we'll link just one Amazon store, or whatever, and then you can find it in your own Amazon store if you're interested. But honestly, like if you're living in Japan and you just want to hear about more people that are here that have found uh, a way to call this home, um, it's a really encouraging book in that sense. Uh, one of the things I liked about it too, John, was that it's it doesn't paint this picture of Japan as perfect, or it's not one of these rah rah sisboomba. We love Japan, and there's nothing wrong with this country. Like it's it's a very realistic, very like earthy book about how people had genuine struggles fitting in here, and there's no Japan bashing in that. It's just it's more of the struggle within, and then how this passion um, was kind of the way out in a way. And a way to getting back to feeling comfortable uh, living in a country that initially was not home, but now feels like home. So um, we'll we'll put a link uh, to that. And John, I appreciate you talking to us about the book. Um, Last, let's just talk a little bit more about some of um, maybe what you've got on the horizon. I know that, um, you know, some of these chapters in the book relate to your hobbies, like cycling and hiking and, and other things like that. But are you, uh, planning to put any other books out, like maybe a, a part two to this or a Japanese version or anything like that? Yeah. So there's, um, if we have time here, two or three projects. Um, but yeah, most, uh, when I first published this book, I mean, this was way bigger than I imagined. You know, I thought I'd be happy to get 15 or 20 chapters and then just so many wonderful proposals and ideas came in that I, I ended up being 31, including myself. So at, at first I was like, at first thing was like, well, let's just keep the ball rolling and, and make a second one. Cause I'm, you know, cause you meet people and I've met people presenting about this and they're like, Oh, I wish I knew about this book. I, I could have written about this and you just hear all these ideas that are still remaining. But, but my priority right now is I'd love to have a, um, a Japanese version of this. Cause, um, again, I, I, Japanese people probably get all these weird perspectives, you know, foreign reactions to Japan, you know, as you just mentioned, like from over praising Japan, you know, the whole weeb mentality to the opposite of that bashing japan and i i think this is just reality you know people who have struggled here but have have come to call it home and love living in this country um so i again there's a certain amount of japanese people who could read the Jap- the english version but you know i'd love to reach more people and, and and just be something a little deeper than the whole you know again why did you come to japan and and focusing on very surface level thing. So, um, that's our priority right now. I love how you put it well earlier. And even just now where, you know, there's this popular show in Japan called, well, why did you come to Japan? Right. You are Nanishini Nippon is the name of the program. And again, it, it kind of does two things. It's this curiosity of why did you enter the gates? 
right? And then also right. <laughs> it's it's just this, you know, the, the the show is basically a vehicle to promote how awesome Japan is, which there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, right. because there are a lot of awesome things about Japan, but it ignores, you know, the other side or or the whole picture. And so the more appropriate question might be, why are you staying? Why did you stay in Japan? And I love that you answered that earlier. And I think each of these chapters does the same thing. You know, I think it's a great idea for Japanese people to be able to hear these very real stories. And I think it might help them to appreciate maybe their non-Japanese neighbors or people they see in the neighborhood that much more. So what is it like trying to put this book into Japanese? Obviously, you're not doing it yourself. You're passing this on to somebody else. Um, is it underway or what's that looking like right now? Um, well, it's really just the search right now. It's, um, as you probably know, there's a lot of, a lot of Japanese publishers, um, but -hmm. it's also very hard to uh, get their attention. So, so fortunately my publisher, um, Tim Craig, who, um, runs blue sky publishing is, is quite fluent in Japanese. So he's done a wonderful job of, you know, putting together a package kind of, uh, summarizing, the book in japanese and and sending out feelers to see if um you know if we can get any publishers um to take this project on um so nothing yet it is a struggle because i think um like anything it's based on sales you know sales projections so you know obviously i love the book and i think a lot of people want to read it but convincing a publisher to you know because this will be a huge um you know, project for them as well to, to pay someone to, to translate this mammoth book. And, and I think it takes, you know, away a lot of technical knowledge because every, there's so many different topics. So, you know, not just the English to Japanese, but also, you know, knowing, being familiar with, with some of these different themes, everything from, you know, sumo to religion to tea ceremony, which even if you're Japanese might not be in your wheelhouse. So just fingers crossed on that at the moment. Totally true. I hadn't even thought about that, that you definitely need to have a very rich, well, obviously understanding of these things and then the ability ability to express them in Japanese. And then one more thing that I think would make it hard or would maybe take a little bit away from it is that each of these chapters was written in a different cadence and style, right? Because you had 31 different people writing their own experiences. And so if you have one person doing the translating, I think it might be really hard for them to match these different types of writing uh, within that. So definitely a huge project, but I mean, um, it would be amazing if it were able to be done. Yeah. Well, don't discourage me more, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I just find 31 translators, but, um, but that is a good point. And then that's just going in. Like I did have kind of a set, a bit of a template for, you know, how to write, but I, but I wanted to also give freedom because you just, you know, you got to let people tell their story. And, and my publisher was very good about that. I had probably too many guidelines at first. And he said, no, you just, just let people tell their story. And, and I, I didn't want it to be an academic book. So mm-hmm. you, you can learn about these different topics, but not in a, you know, over academic style. So anyway. Right. Yeah, no, I, I appreciated that about the book as well. But, you know, on this note of translation, um, if I may kind of hijack just for a little bit, I'm thinking about like, so I'm kind of interested in that area of research now in interpretation and translation. And getting back to what you were saying about The Simpsons and kind of using that uh, in presentations and maybe in, even in the classroom, I think it would be interesting. And, and surely it's been done by somebody. Uh, but looking at how the humor of that show translates over, because when it is shown in Japan, it's shown either it's shown in overdub, or there might be you know the rare occasion when it's shown uh, with subtitles. But either way, there's just so much depth and so many cultural references, historical references that only I mean, not to discriminate, but only Americans can really catch you know the bulk of the humor in The Simpsons. So to bring that to a Japanese audience in that short twenty-two minute window. You know, it would take a lot of explaining. And so it must be really hard. And so researching, like, how does the translator uh, for the scripts choose how to translate these, you know, um, pieces of the dialogue that are so loaded with cultural references? Yeah. And it's a fascinating, you know, area to explore. There's so much untapped research there. And you know, just, I mean, you mentioned 
only Americans would even a lot of there's a lot of you know references in the Simpsons that would go over a lot of Americans' heads Absolutely. and even references I was getting one of my favorite Simpsons lines of all time and I can't mention it too much because this episode's actually banned in Japan because the episode where they come to Japan but ah, um, yes. you know Homer doesn't want to come to Japan and um and um on the flight over mark says oh you know come on homer you'll like japan you liked rashomon and homer says you know that's not how i remember it and um you know a joke on the movie rashomon and how it's told from different people's memory of the same event and i think very few young japanese would even get that reference even translated exactly because i i probably know more foreign friends than japanese friends that have watched you know kudasawa movies so right there's a lot there yeah for sure for sure well hey john one uh, if i could just one quick recommendation is um uh, i think last year or two years ago the japan times wrote a great uh short article on on translating seinfeld um another american sitcom my favorite Mm -hmm. of all time and which completely bombed when it first was on Wawa in the 90s, um, but it's seen a bit of a resurgence with uh, Netflix. But they compared, as you said, dubbing it versus subtitles and the different translation that goes into it. Because, you know, with the dubbing, you also have to think of the timing and the cadence where subtitles, then you have to also be brief. So it's, right. you know, yeah, another fascinating area to explore challenges in both of those for sure and that's you know we would have to open up a whole new episode uh to really delve deeply into that but john let's kind of end things off uh talking a little bit about maybe what's on the horizon for you uh what kind of projects you've got going um yeah yeah so uh just a couple other uh writing or editing related projects um from a passion to japan to uh working in japan um uh, almost 10 years ago now, I was very fortunate to uh, co-write a book for Cengage Learning, also National Geographic, uh, called Working in Japan with Alice Gordenker. Mm-hmm. And what we did with this was interviewed um, 14 different people working in Japan in various fields. And it's it's been one of my you know favorite textbooks, And um, but it is aging. So um, uh, there's been talk of a, a new edition of that. So that's something I'm very excited about that i hope we can um push forward with because um that was a wonderful project to be involved with sounds great yeah i mean i think i've seen that book um out there and um it's something that i think would intrigue both sides you know the japanese nationals as well as the expat community just to kind of see uh you know be exposed to all these different people that are out there in these different professions so very nice very nice yeah, so I like this book both as a listening text and and you know culture based because um, I'm very much an advocate of of world English now and exposing our learners to different accents. So the first book we have people from uh, Germany, India, Taiwan, Vietnam. So it's the reality of English that you know their English does not mean anymore to just speak with people from so called you know native English speaking countries. Um, so so hopefully we'll push forward with that and and just one more uh project you've um so a couple p- contributors to a passion for japan uh wes lang uh, a fellow tigers fan um he wrote a book about his love for hiking and he was the first american to climb the Hyakumezan or top 100 mountains of japan wow. and also uh ted taylor who's based in kyoto and um leads walking tours for international tourists so they're fellow big hikers and they've been working on a a cool project um just um a compilation about hiking in japan um so with different bloggers and people who've been writing about this topic and it's not published yet but they're um working on this now and i mentioned this because i also contributed a chapter which i won't give away too much about it but it's about my um unfortunate encounter with a inoshishi or wild boar while hiking on our our local mountain uh, rokosan uh near kobe so um but they've got all kinds of people who with a fellow passion for hiking in japan so hopefully that book will see the light of the light of day in the next year or two that'd be great and uh you know if we get a chance to talk to you again maybe once it comes out we can kind of push that a little bit as well and you know it does mention our famous 
Mount Rocco. And so we're not going to end this show by singing <laughs> a Rocco Roshi, but I do want to ask you, John, um, I know it's still 2023, but any thoughts on the possibilities? Yeah, we always have to look at the possibilities of the Tigers <laughs> repeating in 2024. What are your thoughts on this team's roster just one last time? Yeah, I mean, I don't even want to consider the possibility of, of repeating because it's just, um, but I mean, We've got to be solid. I mean, I see as as a A class team. I mean, um, I mean the the amazing thing about this year is I thought it was all our pitching, and then you know the who I thought would be our one two guys, um, Aoyagi and Nishi were were out or ineffective for most of the year, and then mm -hmm. these you know um, Mudakami and Otake uh, come out of nowhere. So you know, and if Yuasa gets healthy again, I assume. I'm not sure if the plan is still to have him take over, over from Iwa, Iwasaki as closer, but um, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't dream of a repeat, but I, I, I'm, again, optimistic about next year. Um, I think we have a, a solid core. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's so many factors that go into repeating and we saw, you know, the Swallows won two straight and then they tanked again, which tends to be their trend, right? Um, but, you know, every team has got these unique circumstances and i i wonder how much fatigue is going to play in. i mean our team has never played november baseball or proper november baseball before so are they going to be okay in the spring what is okada going to do as far as employing the play the same players next year is he going to say hey you know um oyama keep your iron ministry going or is he going to give him days off you know um same thing with nakano who played every inning of every game this season and then you look at pitchers, right? Well, a great season from Murakami and Otake this year doesn't guarantee a great season from them next year because mm. sometimes uh, other teams figure them out or fatigue comes in or little injuries or, or nagging, this, that, and the other thing come into play. The thing that I do like about this year's Tigers, though, is that I feel like we've got a lot of depth, particularly um, when it comes to pitching. I think we've got a couple of guys that could squeeze into the rotation and fill some of those spots, maybe not as, uh, you know, adeptly as Murakami and Otake did, but, you know, we've got Oyokawa, um, who is on the young Samurai Japan team uh, that just finished the Asia tournament. We've got mm. Kirishiki, who is able to step in and become a starter, I believe. we got Tomida, who did a bit of starting last year. That's just three lefties. And then we've also got uh, Monbetsu, the young guy who uh, Okada seems quite excited about. He's another lefty. So we've got all those guys. And then there's other guys that, you know, may come around like Junya Nishi, um, Daichi, Moriki, and a few other names uh, are out there as well. So I kind of feel like, you know, we're going to be okay with the arms. I'm a little bit more concerned about our bats. And we were lucky that Chikamoto's injury was short this year. I think he missed maybe like 12 games. And then mm. um, Umeno was so well replaced by Sakamoto um, that we didn't even really notice his absence that much. And that was kind of fortunate um, to be able to have uh, a backup of that caliber to be able to step in. So I just wonder, you know, if someone else, like just for example, like if an Oyama were to get hurt, well, that kills our power game, that kills our on-base game, that kills our defense at first, who would step in? You know what I'm saying? So that's more of my concern than the pitching. But um, I agree with you. I think we're definitely an A-class you know, top of the league playoff team next year as well, because nobody among the starters was over 30 as far as position mm -hmm. players go. I think uh, Sakamoto at age 30 was the oldest. Yeah. And that's a change from the past where it seemed like, you know, eight or 10 years ago when people were just hanging on, you know, a bit too long, like Kanemoto and, and Fukudome and, you know, as, as wonderful as they were, they were also taking the place of of you know establishing a, a younger player and so we've got a good core there but as you mentioned you know we we i think we were really fortunate with with say a lack of injuries this year we were our our offense was you know pretty much there so um mm -hmm. and again we lost our one and two one two pitchers but but again they weren't really missed with with the people we had to replace them so and solid bullpen so um do you recall how did we do in 1986? I can't remember off the top of my head. Third place, and we were right around 500. Yeah. So yeah. So hopefully we don't have a kind of hangover, which is is possible because I mean this is kind of uncharted territory. So, but again, we we should be a class. Um, I can confidently say. Yeah. One of my concerns is that you know the 85 off season consisted of almost zero tinkering with the lineup. 
And the same is kind of true this offseason. Like Okada's kind of gone on a record saying, like, we're not chasing any free agents. We're not signing any big names, anything like that. And as far as even the imports, I think we're bringing in two new imports and, and letting two go. And he even said, well, just because we have space for two more imports doesn't mean we're getting them. Like, we want to make sure we get guys that are good. And so mm-hmm. I feel like we're going into 2024 with almost the exact same rosters we had this year. The bright side of that is that today, Okada actually said, and kind of as a way to maybe push his players to you know reach the next level he said i don't think we can win it all with the same roster next year in other words saying that you know some of you guys may not be the full-time position players Mm -hmm. that you were this year uh just because we want it all in 2023 Mm -hmm. doesn't guarantee you playing time in 2024 so um that being said uh this is the start of uh shorter off season for us because we played all the way into november and uh we really just have like two months and a bit until spring training believe it or not right and uh, and we had as you mentioned we had some players on the um the asia tournament as well right Mm -hmm. yeah that's right so yeah sato and morista and then um kirishiki and oyokawa were on that team so Mm -hmm. yeah well john it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, of course uh we have more than just the Tigers in common, but that's kind of one of the main things that uh, keeps us in touch with each other. But I look forward to talking with you more, not only this offseason, but next year and wishing you all the best in all of your endeavors uh, in academia as well as uh, as a Tigers fan. Okay, thanks, Trevor. Wonderful to talk as always, and thank you for the opportunity. Just want to thank John again for his time today and for really showing us not only his passion for the Hanshin Tigers, but his passion for Japan. You can pick up that book, A Passion for Japan, um, on Amazon, or if you just want the ebook, you can do that at all sorts of other sites or um, stores online. We've got a link to the publisher's website so you can read the synopsis and get a clearer picture of that. And also, uh, we've got the link to the Amazon uh, book itself, the Amazon JP book. So feel free to check that out. All right, everybody, fellow Hanshin Tigers fan, I hope you're enjoying your off-season so far. Uh, Stay warm out there. As I mentioned to John at the end of the show, we're just two months away, roughly, from spring training. Can you believe it? And so, yeah, if you want to take your mind off of baseball for a couple months, you can. Uh, if not, then stick with us because we'll have a couple more podcasts and I've got something else going in the oven as well that I will probably announce at some point on some podcast uh, during this offseason. So stay tuned for that as well. Once again, appreciate your time, John, and everybody out there. Have yourselves a wonderful Well, Thanksgiving is coming and going and uh, enjoy the rest of this 2023, which is coming to an end in like a month. We'll catch you all next time, everybody. Let's go off-season Tigers!